Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice are just two of Jane Austen's novels popular for their romantic love stories. But how do they continue to intrigue modern-day audiences? Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon. And on this week's Fordham Conversations, I'm continuing a conversation with Dr. Susan Greenfield, professor of English at Fordham University. We're discussing the lasting appeal and relevance of Jane Austen. On our last show, we talked not just about the romantic relationships of Jane Austen's heroines, but also about their personal torment and solitude, as well as the power struggles with their seemingly superior male counterparts. And I continue my conversation with Susan now. Susan, how can we delve deeper into the theme of a novel like Pride and Prejudice that's widely known for its romantic appeal and its love story? So I tend to see the relationship between Elizabeth and Darcy as a kind of ideological conflict. That's characteristic of the time. There are a lot of Elizabeths running around. There's Thomas Paine talking about, you know, individual rights. There's a Declaration of Independence about the right to pursue happiness, right? So it's new. It's a new way it's, of thinking. It's a new way, but it's gaining popularity. Mm -hmm. And so a novel that seems to be simply about Elizabeth's declaration of a right to marry in a way that will constitute my happiness can be flattened and has unfortunately been flattened into, well, she's just talking about the happiness in marriage, right? But that happiness is actually a representation of larger questions about happiness and individual rights that Elizabeth Bennet embodies. And the conflict between her and Darcy is whether she or anybody like her has those individual rights and whether he who has a different status and a different set of values, is going to recognize that. And by the end of the novel, he has. On the other hand, and this is, I think, one of the things that makes Austen the subject of so much debate um, and sometimes quite angry debate between readers who want to see her as progressive, like I do, and readers who see her as conservative. On the other hand, Elizabeth does fall in love with Darcy I would argue not only because of Pemberley, but she begins to represent the kind of sustained patriarchal power he has. Um, what do you mean? I mean when Elizabeth is kind of looking at the portrait and thinking about all the power Darcy has, one of the things that she becomes so impressed with is how kindly he exercises it, how benevolent he can be. She doesn't think, wow, this isn't fair. Everybody should have power. <laughs> you know, land should be redistributed. She thinks this is a man with power who uh, practices noblesse oblige. And I'm into that, right? So she is actually falling in love with the very status she has challenged, even as he is beginning to recognize her, the in her the individual rights that um, seem at odds with that kind of power. And... As I often point out to my students, Elizabeth's award for this Declaration of, of Individuality is that she gets to be mistress of Pemberley and to continue the old tradition of, of managing and supervising an estate that is, you know, passed down via 
eldest male sons and excludes all kinds of people all the time. You know, you're lucky if you get to be the housekeeper. Isn't there a bit of you that's hoping that there's some influence in her progressive thoughts that's going to somehow influence, and this is speculative, that is going to slowly influence the house and the people around it if we're in this moment of change? Yes, but it's not going to influence it in a way that somebody else is going to get the house. You know, that house is still going to be passed to people in power. The only difference is that Elizabeth's children, her son, is going to be the inheritor. And he does not have the same pedigree as Darcy. But by being born into that family, will still end up with an outsized advantage, an extreme advantage that all kinds of other people don't have. But the change is not systemic change. It's the change of people in power recognizing a certain responsibility to be kind, to be compassionate, to be generous to those who haven't been afforded their opportunities. But it's not about systemic change. And ultimately, Darcy does prove to be a hero because of his authority. So I think this is part of why we debate about Austen and what's so kind of ingenious about the way her novels are designed, and in this way they often remind me of Shakespeare, to whom she's been compared countless times, that um, they create contexts where certain really powerful questions are raised about who has authority, who is exploited, how people are treated, who suffers, who benefits. They create questions about that and then resolve it in such ways that the system remains relatively the same. It's not about rearranging power or indeed even questioning it in the way that something maybe like Black Lives Matter movement would question it. It's about kind of instructing people in power, how to use their power more wisely. Now, you know, not all the novels do it in the same way. By the time you get to persuasion, The socioeconomic order has changed such that really the middle class, the rising middle class, is is celebrated in that novel. And the importance of older people who have inherited power recognizing um, that the world has to change is, is something that novel stresses. But I would say that in other Austen novels, there's an acute awareness of the kind of suffering, degradation, and genuine unhappiness that accompanies people who do not have access to those kind of benefits. So to get back to a novel like Sense and Sensibility, which begins also with an eldest brother inheriting an estate and not behaving well, right? That puts these women in a really precarious situation socioeconomically. But also, if you think about it psychologically, what you're taught if you cannot have access to property, if you can just be disposed of, you're taught that you don't have value, that, you know, your personality or your individual rights, however much you may cherish them, have no cachet in the world. Do you think that Austin was, in the way she was writing these characters, trying to get us to have some sense of understanding the helplessness of not having this power? I think that her novels do to, you know, do both things, and that's why people can fight about it. I think on the one hand, she really is exposing these inequities and the kind of 
deeply troubling ramifications of it. Another novel I would raise, and this is in many ways my favorite Austin novel at the moment. I mean, it changes. But it's my favorite because it's so dark and so... (laughs) Which one? It's Mansfield Park. Mansfield Park begins with a description of three sisters, one of whom marries into the upper class. She marries Sir Thomas Bertram, and she gets the wealth, or at least access to the wealth and prestige that accompanies that. Her sister marries less well and ends up being the parson's wife. And then the final sister, the youngest sister, marries a a poor naval man and ends up with a ton of children that she can't support and keeps seven more children, and he is alcoholic, and he is abusive, and he is unemployed, and he, I guess, is the kind of person who, you know, one might degrade today as someone who's not willing to work or not willing, you know, right? So, not willing to take care of your kids, not willing to yeah, work. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Fanny is plucked from that family and placed in Mansfield Park in the powerful family, in the prestigious family, in the wealthy family. And this is supposedly this great advantage for her. It's like being adopted into a... Very wealthy and popular family. Right. So how lucky are you, right? And it turns out that she's taught in growing up there her own unimportance, that she is constantly made to feel lesser than. Physically, she's placed in the household away from the rest of the family, nearer the governesses. She's kind of given a servant position. She's constantly told she should feel gratitude, even as she's regularly demeaned and treated as a kind of upper-class servant, and grows up with, really, I, I almost think she, one could say that she has fibromyalgia, by the you know, which is stress-related. She grows up with all kinds of illnesses and anxieties and stresses that make her kind of seem very delicate. But one might argue, in contemporary terms at least, that this is the product of being raised to see herself as inferior in this, you know, lavish home where she is expected to feel grateful for all that's being done to her. It's a really pernicious developmental world that Austin produces for her. So how does Fanny overcome this? Or does she? Well, does Fanny overcome this? I mean, before we get to that question, if I just might point Mm -hmm. out that at the same time, we know from elliptical but pointed references that the family wealth is supported by a slave plantation in Antigua. And that Fanny's arrival is overlapping in important ways with events abroad involving slavery. So that when Fanny first arrives, um, there are critics who have worked out the chronology, and so I'm drawing on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so one way one way to see it is when she first arrives, it's it's in the early 1800s, like 1803, 1804, and then when she comes of age, becomes kind of an eligible woman, teenager, about 16, it's 1810. And what has happened between those years in English history is that the slave trade has been abolished in the colonies. Slavery hasn't been abolished. Just the trade. Just the trade of slave has been abolished, which means that the opportunity someone like Sir Thomas, who's the patriarch in the family, has for maintaining the workforce, the enslaved workforce in Antigua, is complicated 
because he can no longer rely on just purchasing slaves. They die and mistreated, you get some more, right? That That's no good. And he ends up having to go to Antigua for a substantial part of the first volume of the novel. And all kinds of things happen when he's there. But the question is, what is he doing there? <laughs> you know, like, how is he shoring up the population of slaves when he is there? And there are nicer answers and less nice answers. One nice answer, um, if you want to read Sir Thomas as a benevolent patriarch, is he's going there and he's ameliorating the lives there. He's trying to make sure, like Darcy might, you know, that people have the care they need, the food they need to live, that he's trying to uh, provide the best, healthiest environment so that the people will reproduce and, you know... Continue working. Right. Um, that's the nice version of, of of the way to look at it. You know, the other way to look at it is we don't know what Sir Thomas is doing there. Jane Austen read abolitionist tracts. Abolitionist tracts uh, commonly reported that one of the things that happened, that masters did, was raped slave women, generated progeny, progeny that, of course, was not recognized as the master's children and progeny that could then be, you know, enslaved. And when he comes home, we never know exactly what's going on. But there are strange kind of connections. So, for instance, if one wants to think about Sir Thomas as perhaps having generated children abroad that he will not recognize, you can then think back to the way Fanny has been treated in the family as a child who is part of the family but not recognized. Introduced to privilege but not able to benefit from it. Not only not able to benefit from it, but not really seen as part of the family. She lives there. Most of the things she does are servile. And she is not a real Bertram like the rest of them. Is that an allusion to the children abroad who are not being treated as real Bertrams? We'll never know for sure, but Austin is smart enough and historically versatile enough to be suggesting that. Um, when Sir Thomas comes back, after he's been in Antigua, there are all kinds of really creepy things that happens. He starts to look at Fanny in ways that he never looked at her before. Sexually? Well, it seems, whether it's sexually for him or not, he seems to be estimating her value on the market. Mm. So there are scenes, for instance, where he's staring at her and she's feeling very oppressed. There are scenes where he's talking about her body and she finds that very uncomfortable. And ultimately, he decides to stage a coming out ball. So what he's trying to do is arrange for her to have a husband. But the way Austin frames that is, is a great line. Fanny had not been used to the trade of coming out. So now the we only see the other time that word is used in the novel is when Fanny asks about the slave trade after Sir Thomas comes home and nobody says anything. There's a dead silence. So and then when Fanny refuses to marry the man Sir Thomas wants her to marry, he accuses her of willful independence, of not behaving, um, of, you know, exercising a kind of individualism that she is not entitled to. And he ends up sending her back to her original family. 
It's an endlessly fascinating novel. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm talking with Fordham professor Dr. Jane Greenfield. We're discussing the lasting appeal of Jane Austen and the deeper themes of her widely romanticized and popular novels. The point to get back to the start of this conversation, right, which was, well, isn't it good that someone like Mr. Darcy is exercising his power benevolently? Isn't that the best we can hope for? And if one wants to think in modern terms, right? Wouldn't it just be nice if the top 1% was more generous, more philanthropic, more willing to pay higher taxes and, you know, start schools, you know, and fund the education of underprivileged children? I mean, whatever we might um, associate with that with now. I mean, in a novel like Pride and Prejudice, you get the answer like, yes, this all is going to be well. Darcy's a good guy. But in novels like Sense of Sensibility, and particularly a novel like Pride and Pre- um, like, sorry, like Mansfield Park, where the problems of power and those who have it, and the way they exercise it, and those who suffer as a consequence, and the links between that and colonial slavery, however disguised, suggests that Austin is also well aware that it's not just a matter of wouldn't it be nice if people in power were nicer. You know, that there are real moral questions and real forms of, of inexcusable oppression. There's a, a debate between, you know, generosity versus greed. There's a, a theme of powerful and no power. How do you translate this in your class, Susan? What have some of your students said about this, this, this theme of, of power and powerful? Or what have you told them? God only knows what I've told my students over the years. (laughs) Have they been surprised by this or do they get it? You know, can they see where? I guess what I would say kind of in the big picture is that I think it's impossible to pin down what Austin is doing about the problem of power. That at times she really does seem to endorse old, you know, a certain kind of patriarchal power. And at other times she seems to be interrogating it and exposing it, and in Mansfield Park, exposing it in the most um, visceral way and touching on one of the most violent uses of it in terms of slavery and colonial slavery. Um, I kind of wonder, though, is, and I don't know the answer, is she just raising the question and leaving that for the readers to argue for 200 years? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. She never would have expected that. Um, I think what she does is she raises and then she forecloses the questions. She kind of, and this is why it reminds me of a Shakespeare play, um, what she does. Because in a Shakespeare play, in the play itself, there's kind of, it opens the possibilities for subversion, for questions, for power to be um, overturned, for characters who um, wouldn't normally have authority to exercise authority. But then by the end, the system is restored. And I do think Austin tends to restore the system at the end of the novel. And then the question is, you know, why is she doing that? But to get back to your earlier question about how to talk about what Austin's doing with power and really what Austin is saying about human beings, um, I think she's acutely aware of the pernicious effects of the abuse of power. And she... In these novels that are 
on the surface simply about these girls wondering who they're going to marry is actually exposing that so that the questions of, oh, who are you going to marry? Who are you going to fall in love with? Um, who's going to take care of you? Who's going to take care of you? Are questions that come from how are you going to survive in a world where you have no economic agency, where your value is based simply on your appearance and reproductive capacity, where you're easily exploited and easily dismissed. In Sense and Sensibility, when it appears that Marianne Dash will die, she doesn't. You know, characters are happy to gossip about that without recognizing how the social diminishment of her meaning as a human being has actually generated this situation. I think Austin is extremely interested in the difference between people who have the capacity to recognize their own capacity for harm and those who don't. I think she's extremely interested in the difference between characters who act only out of self-interest and greed. And these characters span the economic gamut in Austen's novels. It's not simply upper-class characters who are that way, a variety of characters who are that way. And characters who, who have the capacity to think and care about other people's lives. It's not just about power. It's also about who cares about other people, how people treat other people. People in power are in a unique position to harm other people um, if they do not examine their power. And someone like Darcy comes to examine his power and therefore his, you know, danger is, is mollified. In a novel like Emma... Mr. Knightley, um, who is the most powerful and, while not financially wealthy, land-rich character in the novel and the highest class character in the novel, is all about exercising power benevolently, taking care of everybody beneath him, you know, um, thinking about other people's interests and needs. Um, but... Then someone like Sir Thomas in Mansfield Park, the novel we were talking about before, uses his power, and there's almost no sense that he recognizes how he has abused his power. Or he doesn't care. <laughs> or he doesn't have that capacity to actually reflect on himself. In Mansfield Park, at no point, it's not even, your, your question is interesting. Is it that he doesn't want to or that he can't, right? I do think Austin's drawing a line between people, and this is the kind of inborn quality she's almost interested in. It. It's not like who's born into power, who's not. It's like who is born with the intellectual and moral capacity to examine their own faults, behavior, responsibilities, treatment of other people. And who isn't? And I would say that Sir Thomas is represented as a character who does not have that capacity. And you see what happens. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, at the end of that novel, his eldest daughter elopes and her life is ruined. She's married. She elopes with a lover and her life is ruined. 
And Sir Thomas looks back, and he has a moment when he recognizes that he is perhaps responsible for this because he was in a position earlier to prevent the original marriage that led to the unhappiness, that led to the elopement. But at the time, he decided not to because he wanted the economic alliance that this marriage would provide. And at the end, after all of this has happened, and Mariah, that's the name of the character, who has eloped, he has a moment where he feels badly, and he realizes he should have done more. But the moment passes, and he goes on to punish Mariah, and uh, feel like her fault is far greater than his. You know, it's that. Displace of blame. Yeah. And the kind of insidiousness of that. You know, what happens when people in power cannot see past their own self-interest? Or see it, feel guilty about it, are angry they feel guilty about it, so toss it off of them in a way where you are now even more to blame. Right. Because they don't want to acknowledge right. their, their responsibility. Right. This. And because in society, a woman who falls, a woman who is ruined, a woman who lopes is such an easy... Um, target target for that um as opposed to the kind of context and system that made this a likely result for her um susan recently the new yorker published uh some predictions for jane austen's adaptations in the next like 200 years they include a dating app with no real men but a fake profile for every man mentioned in austen novels uh, a bioengineering company who creates a theme park filled with cloned Jane Austens. So what adaptation do you think Jane Austen's novels will take on in the next 200 years? Just pick one novel if you want to. I think that's an impossible question because I think that the, uh, the Austen industrial complex <laughs> is such that there's simply going to continue to be a profusion uh, and variety of adaptations and that we're not going to be able to single out any of them. A few years ago, there was a fantastic series run um, on YouTube uh, called the Lizabeth, Lizzie Bennett Diaries, where um, Lizzie Bennett was writing a vlog about her life. And it was... Magnificent. I mean, that's not a very good answer. But um, I think it really depends on who's doing the adapting. So, for instance, there are, are white supremacist groups that have embraced Austin. Why? Because they uh, see her as promoting a certain kind of class superiority because all the characters are white. <laughs> Um, there are Christian fundamentalists who promote Austin because they're sexually tame. Nevertheless, there are pornographic, uh, versions of Austin. Um, there's a whole industry of Austin porn. Um, so to kind of single-handedly say what's going to happen with this novel or that novel in whose hands, I, I couldn't hazard a guess um i know i said that was my last question you said before that there have been um adaptations like clueless can you can you list a couple of them i think that might be kind of interesting 
to do. The Lizzie Bennet Diaries was one. Mm -hmm. Um, My students were really hip to that. And I actually wrote a couple of op-eds about it because I thought they were handling it amazingly. Um, One of the things I loved about the Lizzie Bennet Diaries is that many, many, many installments um, did not include Darcy. And then when you started to read the reactions... Um, viewers kept saying, where's Mr. Darcy? I want Mr. Darcy. Where's Mr. Darcy? I want Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy's hot. Where's Mr. Darcy? And I I kept thinking, wow, they really get the novel because Mr. Darcy isn't that important. (laughs) (laughs) So I love that. And Clueless, um, I also get this from Claudia Johnson, Claudia L. Johnson, who I think is one of the greatest Austin scholars alive and even compared to those who are dead, um, I've I've had conversations with her about Clueless. Clueless is a brilliant adaptation of Emma. It's very old now. I guess it's it's from 1995. But um, at least the Silverstone, I think. Um, yeah. Um, and and what it does is it takes Emma and puts her in California, um, and gives her all of these uh, socio you know economic advantages. And then asks us to think about why on earth a character like that should have challenges. And and in Emma, one of the reasons that character has challenges, there are two main reasons. One of the reasons is because a character is actually suffering uh, from grief without realizing it. Loss of her mother and all kinds of losses. And the other is because the character is completely blind to her own behavior and thoughts. And what happens over the course of the novel and over the course of the movie is that the character is forced to recognize what it is she does, how it is she thinks, and how she's misperceived. And when she does, she does begin to exercise her power um, more compassionately. Again, I think the the idea of, of striving for a compassionate exercise of power is a noble one, but insufficient in our moment. But it's it's something. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Elizabeth Greenfield. I'd also like to thank my producer, Marina Koff. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.